Welcome to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, my name is Andres. In today's episode, Queering Abolition, we examine the relationships between carcerality, gendered and sexual violence on the one hand, and between queer and trans liberation, and the abolitionist horizon on the other. We speak first with Jose Saldivar and Carolina Lopez from the Arizona-based organization Mariposas Sin Fronteras. We discuss the ways that migrants fleeing heteropatriarchal and transphobic oppression in their home country are subjected to this abuse anew through the gendered and sexual operations of the U.S. carceral state and its militarized borders. We then turn to a conversation with abolitionist scholar and activist Trevor Ellison, who examines the ways in which racial capitalism has continuously reproduced queer criminality, as well as the ways queer abolition has the potential to not only fundamentally shift our understanding of the geographies of carcerality, but also to radically renew our practices of imagining and organizing toward another world. But first, here's Kay Sayed with some news you may have missed. Transgender prisoner and whistleblower Chelsea Manning was released this month from Fort Leavenworth Prison after serving seven years of her 35-year sentence. Chelsea was unjustly incarcerated after leaking classified U.S. military documents to the public, including battlefield reports recounting the deaths of civilians at the hands of American military forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. After being subjected to years of solitary confinement, President Obama commuted her sentence in his last weeks in office. We at Rust Belt Abolition Radio congratulate Chelsea for her bravery in the face of imperialism and hope she enjoys life outside prison walls. We return to the case of Brescia Meadows, the 15-year-old girl from Ohio who killed her abusive father in the defense of herself and her family. Brescia accepted a plea deal on May 22nd for a charge of involuntary manslaughter, giving her a year and a day in jail, six months of residential treatment, and two years of probation. Since time already served is being counted, Brescia has only two months left in detention before she goes to treatment. Her incarceration is just another example of the injustice perpetuated by the racist and patriarchal nature of the carceral state. On May 27th, the 40-day-long Palestinian prisoner hunger strike came to a tentative conclusion. For 40 days, over 1,500 Palestinian prisoners across multiple prisons under the settler colonial state engaged in a hunger strike to protest abuse and cruelty. Activists and ordinary people across the Palestinian territories and around the globe engaged in actions of solidarity with the prisoners as well. The hunger strikers reached a deal with Israeli authorities ensuring better treatment, including more visitation. See News from the Streets at rustbeltradio.org for links to these news items. I'm David Langstaff, here with Kate Syed, and you're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement building project based in Detroit, Michigan. How are queer and trans people criminalized under racial capitalism? And how does the carceral state reproduce forms of gendered and sexual violence? In what ways does the fight for abolition intersect with and emerge from queer and trans struggles for liberation? These are the kinds of questions that abolitionists ask. We now turn back to David, who will introduce our invited speakers. Alejo spoke with Josue Saldivar and Carolina Lopez, two organizers of the Tucson, Arizona-based Mariposas Sin Fronteras, about the ways in which migrant trans women of color are criminalized and subject to multiple forms of violence, as well as the ways these communities are resisting, organizing for survival, and toward abolition. 
My name is Josue Saldivar. I have been part of Mariposa Sin Fronteras since 2014. When it first started as an official organization, we were uh, exclusively a bond fund before. But I joined Mariposas in a time where the LGBTQ community in detention needed more resources. It's a population that is very vulnerable, a lot of abuse. Uh, assault, harassment, discrimination happens while in detention, and Mariposa saw a need to not just provide visits and letters, but to also expand the resources that currently Mariposa was providing. And with the help of outreach and including more people, we're doing much more things like supporting bonds, going more regularly to detention centers uh, to visit people there, continuous writing letters. We have done public campaigns push I for release. We provide outside support to once they're outside regarding living arrangements, employment opportunities, medical and mental health support, and various other aspects that come with our programming and education. But I myself am undocumented with DACA, and so I am also at risk for detainment and possible deportation too. And so this is an issue that directly impacts me as well, which is a big value that Mariposas has to center the voices and participation of directly affected individuals. Thank you, Josue. Carolina? Bueno, mi nombre es Carolina López. Well, my name is Carolina Lopez. I'm a Mexican transgender woman who has been living in the United States for more than 20 years. I got involved in activism because of bad experiences I've lived through. For instance, for being a transgender woman, I was locked up several times. I was locked up in jails, and in 2009, I was detained in a Eloy Detention Center, where I unfortunately suffered to several abuses and faced severe discrimination. I was even hit multiple times. When I was in that detention center, I didn't know of any group that supported LGBT community. So when I got out, I was asked by two people who were supporting the LGBT community, but I didn't really know how else to support the community, how to do it, how to start it. I mean, they were already supporting two trans women by paying for their bail bonds, but they wanted to know more, how else they could help, how more they can support. So at that point, they asked me, what is what I most needed when I was in detention? That's when, well, I said that many people come from their countries due to violence, mistreat, death threats. I met a lot of folks inside who lived through those situations. I was one of those people. I realized then that my current life situation was very vulnerable, but also that because of my vulnerability, I had to do something. I had to struggle and I had to raise my voice. I think that Mariposas in Fronteras has allowed me to raise my voice and be heard. Like Josue said, we have made many visits to people in detention. We have supported many, many people by supporting them, by taking them out of detention, supporting them by giving them housing and mental health services. And we are going to keep doing that for as long as we can. We are not going to promise anything that we can't give. On a personal level, even through Mariposas in Fronteras, didn't get to support while I was inside, they supported me once I got out. And that for me has been huge and has made a huge difference in my life. Carolina, you were sharing with us your story about being in detention. Can you tell us how you ended up in detention, how the process was for you, and how you ended up in Arizona in the first place? I've come from my country to escape from transphobia, homophobia, and the mistreat 
I faced at home, in particular for my parents. I arrived to Phoenix in 1995. I was locked up several times simply for being a trans woman. The first time I was locked up was for being a colored trans woman. The police officers accused me of being a prostitute when in reality I was not doing anything of the sort. And well, for that and other things, I was arrested several other times. The last time I ended up in jail, and this is why I don't believe in the government or the police or the political processes more generally, is because in 2009 my personal bag was stolen. My bag at the time contained really important documents that I was carrying. In an attempt to get my bag back, I ended up calling the police so that they can help me to get my stuff back. And well, the police, instead of helping me, ended up arresting me. The police then falsely accused me of committing a crime which was clearly not true. After that, they locked me up. At that point, I decided to fight back and fight the false charges they put me on. But that time, immigration had put a hold on me, and well, I was sent to the Eloy Detention Center. It was there in Eloy that I found another transgender woman who was in this trouble. It was there that I mustered the courage and truly began to fight back. True, I must say that life in detention is a living hell. Like I've said before, while in detention I was hit, I was forced to do things I didn't want to, and they spit on my food. I lived through an infinity of horrible things that one cannot even begin to imagine and that I really wouldn't wish to anyone. You both kept mentioning how vulnerable trans women of color are in particular to various forms of violence, both inside and outside uh, detention centers and prisons and so on. Can you tell us more about that? Transgender women are attacked, mistreated, and murdered many more times than other members of our community. So we are vulnerable because even when we walk in the street, they verbally and physically assault us, and we are not socially accepted. That is, we do not feel safe even in going out for a walk. In detention is even worse. In the Aloy Detention Center, for example, they are women, but they never respect one's gender. Not one transgender woman, those that are or are not operated, their gender isn't respected. That is, irrespective of how transgender woman looks like a woman or not, regardless, they put with the men. In my case, I was put with the men. I spent three years and six months of my life locked up with men. In the case of Florence, the Special Processing Center, it's a facility where only males are placed and there has been instances where transgender women have been placed there and they're subjected and at risk of so many things. And that's a big push for us to do a public campaign in order for them to be released on the basis of those potential risks that could happen. We know that detention centers do not respect gender identity. And once in court in front of a judge, it is very likely that judges don't recognize chosen family within the LGBTQ community. And the judges end up saying that because individuals do not have blood-related relatives in the United States, that they don't have family, and therefore they're a flight risk, and that that prevents them from getting bond or other illegal avenues of relief. But I think that the court's inability to see the legitimacy and the real aspects of chosen family in the LGBTQ community, that needs more work to be done within our judicial system because a lot of the people that come to our uh, detention centers are sometimes people that have been living in the streets 
who have been homeless, who were rejected and, and told to not be in their homes anymore because of their sexual orientation and sexual identity. And so they come alone. And organizations like Mariposa Sin Fronteras become their chosen family. And uh, I do think that there's a lack of sensitivities in, in, rea in reality that we're facing those things in detention where, like I mentioned, uh, gender identity is not respected and chosen family is not seen as legitimate. Right, and the point ultimately is to get everyone uh, out of detention. Yeah. The Mariposa Infantera's mission, for example, seems to emphasize that one day in detention is, is too long, one deportation is too many. And ultimately you all uh, envision a society that no longer finds solutions in the system of immigration detention or the prison industrial complex. This is directly from, from your mission statement. So given this, how do you all understand both the abolition of borders, of prisons, of detention centers, in relation to the struggle for queer and trans liberation more, more generally? Well... I think that if we are fighting for a person that is in a vulnerable situation, any person that is vulnerable, and in this case, if we are fighting for transgender women, we are also fighting for dignity of everyone in general. In terms of abolition, Mariposa Sin Fronteras, when it became an organization, had to have the conversation about that. And we came to the realization that if none of us in the movement talk about abolition, we will never have abolition. And so the fact that we're planting the seeds so one day abolition could be a reality, I think that that's what Mariposa Sin Fronteras has uh, believed and has the values in. The fact that we may not see abolition within our lifetime, but we need to do our part in order to make abolition a reality sooner than later. And so we do see it as a personal and therefore in consequence an organizational, so to speak, responsibility to defy and challenge our legal system in the ways that are within our capacity to do. And if that means confronting ICE for its inhumane treatment of detainees, then that's what we will do. If we need to take on the streets and do public campaigns and take over social media to shine light and the realities of people's lives and experiences in detention and prison, then that's what we will do. And so I think that what Carolina was saying is extremely important, and it should be noticed that a lot of the LGBTQ community's successes and victories have been as a product and as a participation of a transgender CSC woman whose participation and work and sweat, blood, and tears, and effort have not been recognized, and that needs to change too. We need to give respect and where respect is due and stop this dividing the community in those ways. Thank you so much uh, to you both, Jose and Carolina, for, for your time and, and for the tireless work you do uh, with Mariposas Sin Fronteras. Are there any other things, some last things you'd like to say? Just that we will continue the struggle, we will not sit back and wait. We will continue to fight to be respected, to be recognized, and to be loved and cared for. And thank you. Thank you for everything as well. A. Maria and Alejo Stark recently spoke with Treva Ellison, abolitionist activist and assistant professor of geography and women, gender, and sexuality studies at Dartmouth College. Treva spoke with us about queer criminality under racial capitalism, 
the ways in which queer abolition expands our geographical imagination of the carceral, as well as little-known histories of queer resistance and the efforts of the state to contain and co-opt these struggles. Last year, you gave a popular education talk in Chicago framed by George Jackson's calls for a politics of perfect disorder, one that necessarily denatures the life cycle of law and order. How has queer criminality been vital to the life cycle of law and order? I'll say, for me, queer criminality isn't just necessarily pointing back at queerness as a sexual identity or even a set of sexual or gender practices. For me, queer is really indexing the what Dual Coast Vargas calls the genetic fact of blackness, the way that racial difference and the racialization of space has always kind of maneuvered and worked through gender and sexuality. And Cedric Robinson also notes this at the beginning of Black Marxism, where part of his argument uh, to racial capitalism is that for him, the racial is always already gendered and sexualized. He's trying to think about queerness and criminality, because that's a really popular exciting turn that I see happening, at least on the academic end. And I see that showing up in activism, too, with this idea that, like, race is not just identitarian. So when we're talking about queer criminality, we're not talking about identity, but we're talking about value at the ontological level. And so coming to it from that angle, through someone like Hortense Spiller, she says that black women's bodies form the point of passage between the human and the non-human world, and that this kind of movement is vital to the reproduction of racial capitalism, because this is the, she's writing at the scene of enslavement. Racial difference, was, which is so vital to the structures that produce and reproduce the prison industrial complex, we can't think of them without thinking about the way that they are kind of transversed and transsexed and translated through the categories of gender and sexuality and vice versa. That's a symbiotic relationship that has enabled us to kind of the subjects of politics and ethics and reason that kind of compose modern life. So when I say that uh, queer criminality is kind of vital to the life cycle of law and order, I mean it on this really intimate level, kind of symbiotic relationship between race, gender, and sexuality, or in other words, the way that we can't think about gender norms or gender divisions or sexual divisions without understanding the way that those things were worked out in the terms of settler colonialism and enslavement on the bodies of black women, on the bodies of women of color, and but then also just the way that for those, those very same people that are denied a kind of position or a certain level of legibility in the very symbolic order that we still live in that we have to kind of frame and arrange our politics into. So when I say that queer criminality is vital to the life cycle of law and order, I mean it on that level. And so then we see that play out in all kinds of ways. And in my academic work, you know, I do historiography around policing to kind of look at the ways that the logics of queer criminality get reproduced even in political movements or advocacy attempts that are on their surface trying to be critical of policing or of incarceration. So that's one way that I think that through. But then I also look at how the racialization of space and in particular the kind of division and views of space that are produced through the 1939 Homeowners and Loans Corporation maps, the infamous redlining maps, 
how those became a template that guided the way that the LAPD made arrests for what was categorized as sex crimes and sex work. So I think about the ways that what we understand today as queer criminality on a kind of superficial way, as even just indexing the way that queer people are criminalized, can't be thought of outside of the racialization of space. And so then what what does that mean for our intelligent political and intellectual projects? What does it mean to take that seriously? For our listeners in Detroit who aren't as familiar with the policing of sex and gender, can you talk a little bit about the historiographies of policing that you've done? I'm working on something right now that specifically is looking at the ways that Gay Liberation Front and the Los Angeles Gay and Lesbian Center, which at the time a lot of members who are also in Gay Liberation Front were working at the early, it was then called the Gay Community Services Center, and now it's known as the Los Angeles LGBT Center, so it's that thing that still exists today. So the people who, you know, in the early days when the center was just kind of coming together, one of the things that I kind of detail is how on the one hand, you see how the people who were working in these organizations at the Center and Gay Liberation Front really kind of stepped up, mobilized around the police harassment of LGBT people. But in particular, I'm writing about the way that they mobilized around the murder of this uh, 20-year-old gender nonconforming black person named Laverne Turner. And so Laverne Turner was murdered in March of 1970, and a bunch of the kind of early organizations that would form the kind of like progressive to liberal gay and lesbian political formation against vice policing in Los Angeles, they stepped up to mobilize around the murder of Laverne Turner and they put her murder in conversation with these other murders that had happened and had this whole critique of vice policing. But then if you really go into the history of the organization, what you see happening is right on the one hand, what you see happening as a kind of potential for anti-racist politics which within a lesbian and gay political formation within these kind of white, mostly male-led gay political formations. But then at the same time, the potential for that is being eroded by the ways that these war on poverty era programs and the ones after. I look at general revenue sharing under Nixon, and then we could also then think about what happens under Reagan when all those programs get cut. The way that these political formations, at least in Los Angeles and in the case that I'm looking at, get drawn into the kind of auspices of what Jennifer Walsh calls the voluntary sector pose a limit on their ability to operationalize any radical critique of the state, right? Because now they become dependent on the state for certain types of funding. That funding starts to shape the structure of the organization and the politics, like there's certain things you have to do to get the funding today. People call it their nonprofit industrial complex, although I prefer Jennifer Walters, the way she describes it as the voluntary sector and the rise of what she calls the anti-state state, because it really presses on what we understand as the kind of mapping of the carceral. For her, the anti-state state is about how the like responsibilities, and not just the responsibilities, but the logic and the culture of the carceral state get kind of socially dispersed amongst community organizations, and then you see 
the politics of self-determination get drawn into a logic of self-help. This example was illustrative of the ways that shift in capital and state capacity in terms of the growth of the voluntary sector place all these uh, pressures, not just on LGBT political formations, but a number of political formations. What do you think what you called just recently queer abolition have to offer to this, to this moment, to this crisis of mass incarceration, to the recurring crisis of, of racial capitalism? Queer abolition expands our geography of the carceral because we see how even things that we might think of as benevolent institutions actually reproduce these same carceral logics. And I think we see this often most viscerally with looking through the lens of a queer abolitionist politics or the lens of queer criminality. I recently wrote a piece for Verso about the case of Brisha Meadows. And Brisha Meadows doesn't identify as queer, but I would argue that queer criminality for me as an analytic and queer abolition as a, as a demand to, to reorient our mapping of the carceral asks us to think about how, in Brisha's case, all these spaces that were carceral, the home, right, was like the primary carceral space. And then the routine, the routine the routine failure of even reformist kind of strategies. For me, what queer abolition does, it refocuses and it expands our geography of the carceral and really presses upon this point that reform is a way to reproduce the system. But I also think it asks us to really think about how to practice care, what a politics of care really looks like, because a lot of these services are framed through the language of care, but I think groups like Survived and Punished, Gay Shame, all the grassroots organizations that have risen up, for example, around Brisha's case, groups like Fight to Live in New York that organized around the Banya McKean case, thinking about Detroit, the case of Shelley Billiard. So there is this grassroots effort to not only respond to these cases, but also to really push the analysis. And I think the way that they've responded is asking us to really think deeply about what it looks like to practice abolition. That yes, there are certain kind of legislative work that needs to happen, but there's also this really important work of building relationships and valuing relationality that I think you see in groups like Song, for example, the Mama's Day bailout, and the way that they were so intentional about that and about really expanding the notion of motherhood in terms of who they bailed out. I do think one common thread I see around organizing efforts and practices, strategies, and tactics that I would put in the genre of queer abolition is this focus on relationality and really thinking about what it means to wrest the politics of care from this liberal humanist administration of care that people like Dean Spade have pointed out is so violent. Yeah, hopefully uh, we continue to grapple with this expanded notion of abolition as you're, as you're talking about, Trevor. Queer abolition in future shows. Hopefully we can have you back on as well. So thank you so much for your time and for your work. Trans and queer liberation movements have always been at the forefront of the abolitionist struggle. As abolitionist Raina Gossett often reminds us, it wasn't long ago that organizations such as street transvestite action revolutionaries fought alongside the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords against state violence. In many ways, for queer abolition, transphobia and violence against gender nonconforming bodies 
cannot be resolved through more violence. That is, with more police, more prisons, or even citizenship. Queer abolition affirms that making the world anew means transforming social relations at every scale. Thanks for tuning in. Check out our website at www.rustbeltradio.org. This show is co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Team. Andres, E. Maria, David Langsaf, Cape Syed, and Alejo Stark. Special thanks to Ludmila Ferrari for dubbing our interview with Mariposa Sin Fronteras. Original music by Bad Infinity. <laughs>